early in, in my recovery from alcoholism, I, 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 a guy from uh, the AA said something that I've heard many times since then. He says, AA can't stop anybody from drinking, but we can sure take the fun out of it. And what he means by that is, is he, you know, basically I can still do the things I do, but now, the more I learn, the more I realize how, how insane this is. We don't get to choose how fast somebody else moves along. We get to nudge them and encourage them and the, the other stuff. Everybody's got to make their own choices about that. But we do want people to understand that, you know, no, this, you know, we do want to keep reinforcing, no, if Ed is telling you this is normal, it's not. And when Ed is telling you it's impossible for you to get well, he's lying to you. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. Today, you'll hear the conversation that I had with psychotherapist Tom Rutledge. Um, It's a really real, honest, and um, sometimes funny, sometimes sad conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Tom. If um, You might have heard of one of his books called Embracing Fear, um, and he also co-authored a book with Jenny Schaefer, which is called Life Without Ed. And so um, Tom is somebody that has personal recovery um, experience from depression, addiction, and what he describes as excessive self-criticism. But he's also got a lot of experience helping other people through these um, various um, mental illnesses and also eating disorders. So thrilled to have him on. I really hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. The first thing that I ask Tom, as I ask all of my guests, is to tell us a little bit about himself. So here's Tom. Well, it's uh, I always say I'm an accidental psychotherapist. I never meant to be uh, in this business. I, and interestingly, I never meant once I was in the business to specialize in eating disorders. So I'm uh, uh, and I, I consider it all a happy accident. I'm very I'm very glad to. To have, la- have landed where I am, and uh, I've been doing I've been doing psychotherapy in one form or another for the last uh, uh, wow thirty years, or so, a little bit over thirty years, and and twenty five of that I've been working with the eating disorders, and uh, I mean the bottom line is I you know I I've, uh, I, lo- I love what I do I love to I'm, I'm happy to say after all these years I'm not burnt out I I am. Uh, I continue to learn more and I'm fascinated by doing this work all the time. Love to do it with clients and to do it in my office with clients through Skype around the world and, and do lots of training these days. And, uh, I just, uh, I just have a lot of fun with it. And so how did that happy accident occur? It's, well, that happy accident happened because uh, I was uh, I'd been asked by a, a, a local program here. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, like a local uh, outpatient program who did eating disorder work to come over and do a a, a day in one of their in, intensive outpatients about addiction. Uh, because you know, a colleague and I were talking about. I do. I, did, I was an addiction specialist and did a lot of work with alcohol and drug addicts, and and we were talking about how much that seemed to have in common with the eating disorder world. So I so I began to do a a, a piece of their program every so often, and became absolutely fascinated with this. I would the way I the way I put it is I as I'm a recovering addict myself, and I and I. Be, realized that these people I was I was talking to in this program that I identified with them so much through the just the whole they had so much in common with my addictive thinking and yet simultaneously they were so different and, I, and there were just parts of it that I just could not get my head around so I became really 
challenged by that and made it, I made a very conscious decision that, that, uh, that I wanted, I was going to let these people with eating disorders teach me how to treat eating disorders, which I can honestly say that's where I've learned how to, to do that. And then through that process, uh, a, a young woman was in one of our groups and then did some individual work with me. Her, her name is Jenny Schaefer and she did a, uh, she and part of she said she wanted to write a book, and uh, so I said, okay, well we can if, as long as you're willing to do the work. And she did. She got uh, busy working on her own recovery, and she um, put together the book. And her publisher asked me to add a little piece of that, and that book uh, took off and became a bestseller. And all of a sudden, I was an eating disorder expert. <laughs> Everybody was contacting me from all over the place about that. So. So I, you know, and I've just, I've just, uh, hopefully stepped up to that challenge for all these years and continue, continue to do it. I'm interested what you said there about there being similarities in, um, you as a recovering addict, mm -hmm. the way of thinking and differences. Can you, yeah. can you tell me a little, well, some of the similarities and, but also some of the differences? Well, there's, I mean, first of all, one of the, the, the differences that we end up talking about most have to do with, with really just the the difference in, in what is required behaviorally as far as recovery goes. I mean, this, um, I, I long ago stopped saying it was easier to recover from alcohol or drug addiction than it was from eating disorder. Cause it's been pointed out to me that there was nothing easy about that, but it is simpler. It's like the, the idea of my sobriety, what is my, you know, my sobriety is not, not drinking, not, not taking drugs. I'm not supposed to take. Whereas depending on what, what, uh, what variety of eating disorder you have if we look if we use that analogy that the 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 sub the the uh, sobriety you know for for an eating disorder person has a lot to do it's a lot very complicated because it has a lot of do's and don'ts i need to be sure i eat these foods i be sure i don't don't eat these these foods or i don't you know i have to eat this much or i have to eat you know at certain times there's just lots and lots of details of those food plans that become more more complex and i think and I think one of the things that happens when you're dealing with that, that we'll talk, I'm sure, along the way here, that that inner voice that becomes the eating, that is the eating disorder for the eating disorder person, the addict for me, is uh, because of that complexity, it gives it gives the eating disorder that around here we just use the acronym and call him Ed. It gives him lots and lots of leeway to basically mess with people's minds and to keep people pretty confused. And uh, it makes it harder, just I think harder not necessarily long-term recovery, but harder to get started, to get get a foothold and get get to, to begin a solid recovery. Yeah, let's let's talk about a little bit about that that sort of inner inner voice. And um, I have some questions that mm -hmm. actually come from. Um, I'm really interested in the things that you say about using fear um, mm -hmm. to your advantage, mm -hmm. and I'm guessing that that's also the same sort of thing is going to come in with with sort of dealing with that inner voice. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there, there are the work. The work I've that I've developed through the years, Tabitha, is it's it's so process oriented that it re it really can be applied to lots of different things. There's some some basic and and fear is certainly a piece of that. I mean, to me, I wrote a book called Embracing Fear, and it's it, uh, and um, one of the things I, you know, decided about about doing it that way was fear is the great common denominator. It's the great connector. I think that we all have as as um, human beings. It's sort of the the uh, I don't know if it's the price we pay. It's something that comes with our human self consciousness, and it's something we're challenged with. 
And uh, there, people either acknowledge that that's, that's an issue in their life and they have to deal with it or they're not or they're in denial and don't don't do that. But I think that's the bottom line. And right on top of that, I think, you know, what I've dealt with 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 people with myself, first of all, there's a lot of this that comes from my own personal recovery, not just the alcoholism, but um, has to do with that that judging voice that that uh, I I stopped saying self critical voice, but really more of the self condemning voice. Most of the people that I work with, you know, be they be they dealing with neither eating disorder or uh, addiction or with with either one of those have this in common have we have we have these bullies in our head these these mean critical condemning voices some version of that, that that will tell us that whatever we do is not enough it's like it's if you made a if you made a b you should have made an a if you made an a you should have made an a plus and if you made an a plus you should have made it sooner something like that it's like so I, and i think un, there is no such thing as recovery from any of this stuff without also getting underneath there and dealing with that self-judgment uh, that, and, and, and really that becomes a matter of working toward, <clears throat> toward something that seems, seems very far-fetched in a lot of my clients' eyes when we first started, start with the work, but it's, it's, it's um, self-compassion. It's not, you know, it's, it's not namby-pamby, you know, lovey-dovey. It's, it's like, no, it's, it's really about learning how to be on your own side and how to stand up for yourself you know, to, to the world outside, but to begin with, to stand up to yourself, to your eating disorder, to your addiction, whatever that, whatever that bully is, is telling you, uh, is wrong with you. Very true for, um, certainly my experience with eating disorders and, and recovery. A lot of my recovery was, um, involved telling that voice to piss off. Or even actually, even if I didn't do that, I after a while developed where I, if it was telling me, oh, you know, you're greedy, lazy, I'd just be like, yeah, I am. Bring it on. Exactly. Well, you know, and that and that's it too, Tabitha. I mean, people, um, you know, and I always want people to know that that's not where you're going to start. And clearly, your experience knows this too. I think sometimes uh, we get to the place where oh, we think we uh, we hear somebody say that and say, oh, I need to be able to do that too. That place of that. That sort of, I call it the shrug, you know, where you kind of have a, you know, it's like my alcoholism tells me that tequila is a wonderful thing. And I say, you know, okay, thanks for sharing. And, and you know, you say whatever. It's like, we're not, you know, you're not surprised if, if this voice talks to you anymore. It's like, because we don't get rid of them. And that's what people sometimes get ner- nervous when I say that. Because like, the bad news is we don't get rid of these voices. The good news is we don't have to. It's like, we cha- you're, you just said it, we change our relationship with them. And so that we, we move toward that place of neutrality where, where you basically are just Oh, there you are. Thank you for sharing. Whatever you know is where you get to. But to begin with, you know, we have to we have to tell them to piss off to start with. We have to. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to learn that the fact is that voice is not you. And if you if you learn to, if you learn to tell the voice to piss off, then the, the first thing the first challenge you met somewhere along the way is, is understanding that there's a difference between you and and that bully voice of that eating disorder because that and that's the challenge at the beginning working with anybody is to help people make that separation yeah and um i think that that was definitely for me the starting point realizing that yeah. and that was quite a revelation and um i think it's it's got to the point now where we throw that around and people become almost immune to hearing that, but still not really taking it on board and fully under right. believing it. It's a difference. 
Um, and do you have for somebody that maybe has heard or been told that who has an eating disorder? The it's not you. It's not you. And they're sort of they're hearing it, but they're not mm -hmm. um, feeling it. Right. Well, they, I think that yeah, I think a lot of times that that people stop short. They, uh, I would say you can you can. Um, these concepts are helpful. The idea of separation, and we can tell stories about the, sort of this metaphor of relationship of what we say and what they say. The concepts of those are helpful. The, what I've learned is the practice of it. When you actually learn how to do it, that's transformative. It's like it's amazing. That's one of the things that happens in my work over and over again. People, especially people who've read my books, and they'll come to my workshops and they'll say, "Well, you know, this I like this idea." But then when we get in the middle of the room and we get we put some chairs out there and we start to do the work and have people do the actual separation, it's 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 life it's life changing. It doesn't mean it fixes everything. It just means it changes your perspective so much. So so one of the things that in order to respond to what you're saying about. We have to, we have to, I have to stop and, sh and, and help somebody know that we're not just talking about just an idea. We're talking about something. If you're going to recover in the way that I think the way it sounds like the way you have in the way that I, that I have in, with my addiction and how we teach is you, we actually have to learn the actual techniques of this. We have to understand it's not just an idea. It's like it, it really is. You have an, you, you have an eating disorder, but you're not an eating disorder. I have alcoholism, but I'm not alcoholism. There is, you know, there is a me that I have to, I have to find. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is to very specifically do the work of, fi well, basically finding out who I'm not. And it's like that's, and that becomes the, the bully voices, those negative voices. And, um, you know, and, and I think if, if people, I guess the short version of this is that if people stop short and just say, well, that's a fine idea, that's a good concept then they're, they're really stopping short of being able to give themselves a chance to have this stuff work for them. I mean, we, you really got to roll your sleeves up and you really got to do the work. Yeah. And unfortunately, or, or fortunately, the way you look at it, the work with eating disorders is very um, urgent and evident and yeah. um, it has to happen often and straight away a lot of the time. It's well, and it's discouraging. See that? I mean, a, a lot of times, um, a lot of times, that's what I see is, is a lot. I'm, it's not, it's not unusual in my practice to see people who've been to to various treatment centers, to, to different places, uh, different therapies and things like that. And, and I'm not saying they haven't had some success, but, but they, but, but they keep lapsing back into it. It doesn't quite get it. So I think, I think that's, I mean, one of the things, and, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen with addiction because people obviously go back and, and relapse with that too. But, my experience is that people with eating disorders, it, it's it, the, it gets really tiring. It, a lot of the people I work with, one of the first things I notice about them is they're pretty they're pretty damn tired. They're pretty emotionally exhausted of this, and therefore they're 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 battling discouragement on top of everything else. So that's one of one of the first things that that I always want to work with somebody on is to be able to just to you know say we gotta we gotta find a tangible a tangible way for you to have hope, not just hope because I say. Hey, it's going to be okay, you know, or people get over this, that kind of stuff. But we really have to get down there and roll our sleeves up and find out what's going to give this particular person hope. And what might be a tangible thing to, to give somebody? Well, I mean, I think, well, first of all, I think, I think it, it, it helps a lot to, for somebody that is that discouraged for somebody to pay attention to them and to really understand that. I, very too often in the name of, in the name of, uh, with good intentions, in the name of, of, of trying to help, rather people reassure by minimizing 
they, this is one of the things I wrote about in my, my fear book is that we don't mean to do that. But instead, you know, if I say I'm, I'm afraid of something, if I try something simple, we'll say, I, I tell you I'm afraid to, to fly. I'm afraid to get on an airplane and I've got to get on a plane tomorrow. And, and, and you tell me with good intentions, you go, oh, no, no, don't, don't, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's okay. It's like, well, that seems like a nice thing to say to people. If you actually stop and look at it, it's not, it's not a reassurance. It, it's a criticism. It's telling me that I'm not, you know, that I shouldn't be afraid of what I'm afraid of. Or it's a minimization. It's telling me that I'm more afraid than I should be. I think a lot of times we do that with, with eating disorders and especially people who don't have, and, and you know this, if somebody hasn't had some version, some experience with some of this stuff, it's really hard to explain it to them. You know, it's, it's so, so it, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, they can, they can listen. I always I tell clients sometimes that people, some, some of those normal people out there could listen to a session we're having and they would just think, you know, obviously, first of all, they're going to think your therapist is trying to make you crazier <laughs> by having you talk to all these voices. And I'm going, going like, and what we know, but anybody who's been in there, it's like, so the first thing I want to think about reassurance, reassurance is what brings the hope is to be able to, to let people know, I get it. That I get, we need to say, I understand how hard this is. And, I, and, I, and we need to be able to listen to somebody tell about their struggle and not jump so fast to, oh, we're going to fix this. But, but I, it, just, it just makes so much difference just for somebody to, to actually hear you. And it's, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to listen to somebody. And because of the experience I've had with working with eating disorders and all, all I've learned from people recovering, it's, it's such a nice thing when somebody can, can look at me and say, Thank you. You you seem to get it. You know, that's the that's the that's the that's the sentence you hear the most. You get it, and it's like there's where the hope is. It's like so, even even if what I'm saying is this sucks completely, and I understand that you are totally discouraged, and you don't even believe it's possible to recover anymore. We don't ordinarily think of that as a hopeful thing to say. But when somebody's feeling that way, and if we can join them, if I can say that, and that's the truth for them. They they're not alone in that moment. And that's where the hope comes from. Yeah. It's like if I can say, you know, I see exactly how far down that well you are and it's going to take a long rope to get down there to get you. Yeah. You know, I, but I, we're, and then the, then the reassurance comes in terms of what we're going to do it. Yes. And I do think I mean, it's something I, I say a lot every day is I know this is scary as hell. Yeah, <laughs> because... absolutely. People sometimes empathy. You know, people do not understand how important it is to validate that. It's like, yeah, because this is this is some. And I mean, it's scary as hell, and it's it's the hardest work. Sometimes it, it's not unusual for it to be the hardest work somebody's ever done in their life. Oh yeah, I mean, oh, it's yeah. excruciatingly painful. It is, but it, oh, I always say, if, if you can do eating disorder recovery, everything else that life throws at you that's, is a walk in the park. That's it. <laughs> and so there's some hope there. But, you know, it also comes in, I think, what you were just saying with the achievements. You know, I remember the first time I ate a slice of bread and I had no one to tell about that who would understand that that was a colossal achievement. Yeah. And if I did tell someone, I knew that they'd look at me and be like, and? <laughs> like, I ate a slice of bread. I know. I know. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is so important. Um, yeah, I mean, because because one of the things that I find, because you know, because people that I work with so often with eating disorders are tend to be just really mean to themselves and and not give themselves credit for much. It's like very often when people are making, when, you know, let's just use that as an example. When somebody has eaten a sli that slice of bread and they come in and they tell me about it, they're you know, 
they may be running right past it because th- their inner critic is saying that's no big deal. But sometimes, you know, we got to stop. I stop them. You, you stop them. We say, well, wait a minute. Wait, you need, you just told me something that is a big, a big scary thing that you did, you know? And it's like, again, that's, that's our job is sometimes I think my job is to slow people down and be sure that be sure that they're taking every one of these steps as, as consciously as they can. And that, and certainly what we're talking about here is not only being able to, to some, to be, I have somebody to report that to, but, but somebody who, who, who can mirror back, you know, like what you said, what a big deal this is. Mm-hmm. And it's like every little step is a giant deal. I mean, it's, and it's not, it's not patronizing. I want people to know I'm not patronizing anybody. I'm going, you know, if it's not a big deal, it's not a big deal. But, but, but when it is, it's like, if we don't give ourselves, and, and, and it's not just about giving credit, they, the person has to learn to give themselves credit. Because if you can't do that, you, you, you can't, you got to build on success. But in order to build on success, you have to give yourself credit for success. And giving ourselves credit People working with, with not, you know, eating disorders don't have a corner on this market, but pretty, pretty damn sure that, that most people with eating disorders I've ever treated are going to have a hard time giving themselves credit for what they've done right. Yeah, and I think that I was just thinking about what you say there, and I think you're absolutely right. For me personally, I think a lot of the reason I couldn't give myself credit was because I couldn't bring myself to acknowledge the fact that I'm a 30-year-old adult and I can't eat a slice of bread. I, it, I couldn't yeah. logically acknowledge that yeah. for a long it's, time. Right, because you have the – we think about the judgment that people have on the outside, but the person with the illness has the same judgment. Mm-hmm. You know, only you, you tend to be meaner to yourself about it. It's like – and it and that's the thing. To, it's, it's insane. Of course it's insane. It's like because there's a part of you that just goes like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm a 30 year old adult. I know that eat. You know, I understand science. I, I understand that. You know, when I when I eat, it, you know, that I'm supposed to eat this stuff. It's like, but you know, I, I tell people a lot of times. I said, you know, make I call it not. I call it psychotic experience in non psychotic people. Meaning, yes, the the thought process of eating disorder is just broken from reality. It really is. But we're not crazy. No. You know, it's like it's, it's like it's like, but it's it, but it feels crazy. Oh, it feels so crazy because you pile yeah. on top of that. I'm a 30 year old adult. I can't eat. I have a fear based reaction when I even think about eating. Yet mm-hmm. at the same time, I love food and I'm really very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, people, people, I think family members get the most surprised about that idea when, 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 uh, when, they, when, when the person, the, the, their family member is able to say that, say, oh no, I really like food. And they look at them like, what? <laughs> That's actually half the problem is that I really like food, I think. Yeah, it's um so I'm really interested that you have experience with um addiction because mm-hmm. well I'm told that and um some of the people that I've I've worked with as well have substance abuse and I'm told that that's um that often happens alongside eating disorders. But then yeah. I, I wonder if that happens any more often than alongside any other kind of um, problem. Well, I mean, I, and, and I'm and I'm I'm definitely not a not a researcher or could quote the the studies and things. That what I know from my experience. First of all, I think that 
I really have come to believe that addiction is, is, is probably the best metaphor for the human condition. So I, I, long ago, did, when, I, when I speak in terms of addiction and addiction recovery, did, you know, I, I no longer am necessarily talking about substance addiction or not. I'm talking about, I'm talking about our, our, our misguided attachments you know, to things that we think are going to make us feel better or be better that, that, that may work at first. And that's the truth with, with my disease or, or yours, these things help us at first, they work at first and then they stop helping over time and then they start to destroy us. And that's, that's something these, both of these illnesses have in common. They turn on us, you know, and, and it's like, uh, it's, you know, if there wasn't something positive about them, See, this is something people don't get either that, that don't have this. Stuff. If, if there wasn't some positive, something positive to the experience, we wouldn't have a problem. The, the problem is that there is payoff to my, al- my alcohol and, and other people, people's restriction or their bulimia or whatever it is. They, it does increase. And one of the things, there's many ways it does it. But one of the things we can say they have in common with addiction is they're medicating. Yeah. You know, we, we, get, we get relief. From this stuff, and one of the things that when I, you know, when I go to treatment programs, be they addiction treatment programs or eating disorder, I, I one of the things I emphasize, I say, and I like to say it this way because it kind of gets people's attention. But you know, I say that you you have to uh, you have you have to focus enough on the positive aspects of of addiction in order to understand how difficult recovery is, because. It, you know, because everybody wants to just say, oh, it's bad. It's all bad. And they're like, well, you know, I never miss the bad parts. You probably didn't either. I don't miss being hungover. I don't miss being, you know, driving under the influence or, or being an asshole and throwing things across the room. You know, I miss the things that I associate with, with my, my chemical addiction that were, that were positive or that were relieving to me. So, I mean, when we're thinking about that stuff and, and the people I talk to with eating disorders, have the exact same experience. It's like, no, no, I remember how it worked for me. And, and that's what makes it, that's what makes it difficult. When I was, you know, that's why we have to grieve. Uh, one of the exercises I give clients, sometimes I call them just make a list of Ed's gifts to you. What are the, what are the positive things that, that Ed has given you? And people look kind of surprised about that, but, but it's like when they do it, what you do is you take a look at this and, and it also is, is towards self-compassion. No wonder this is so hard to give up. It really does give me some comfort. It really does give me a place to hide. It really does keep me from feeling things when I don't know what to do with my feelings. I think you asked me a different question, but that's okay. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the answer that came yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it differs. Um, you know, it d- depends on I think, especially with eating disorders, what a person has alongside with that. So if they have low self-esteem yeah. and maybe dislike things about their body. Um, but that would never, none of those things are actually true for me. I, I was always very body confident. I was mm-hmm. the most mm-hmm. confident teenager in the room. And really mm-hmm. actually the only time that I started to very much dislike my body was when it was emaciated and I still could mm-hmm. not make myself eat more. Right. You know, I think I was quite a straight case of, of anorexia, like the pure mental illness. I don't, Right, I, I you, and you, I, you could you, you knew you could perceive you were emaciated. Oh you yeah, you I didn't have, have anybody dysmorphia. You weren't the, the anorexic that looks in the mirror and sees somebody who is who is who is is fat or or large. No, it's no, like yeah, I, so I, I didn't have anybody dysmorphia at all. I could see that I was very underweight, um, and I didn't actually 
go on a diet to necessarily lose weight actually um in the first place so my my energy deficit was created pretty much accidentally um and so the the body image thing was never anything for me and despite all of that despite looking in the mirror and seeing myself emaciated and hating it Mm -hmm. i i was still unable to eat more Uh, just you know even all my intentions were i'm going to eat more and it just that behavior change was too terrifying i still couldn't do it um right so you know i'm uh, sort of it was just straight straight the 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 mental illness and the negative effects were really for me very little positive um but i do know that the energy deficit that does does feel comforting then that can be a positive right well and and this this is this brings up a good point too because i think this is one of the ones i end up doing when i'm working with training other other therapists is is your situation is a very good example of how it's how important it is that we do as therapists is that we listen carefully and and we don't make assumptions about what the person in front of us is experiencing because we bring you know we bring a lot of information into that session if we've been doing this work for very long and there is an awful lot that people who have eating disorders have in common with one another but if you're but if you but you know the, the devil's in the details is the way i think about it and so that's where we're going to find the solutions and a lot of times you know i think too many people try to sell the therapy for this stuff and, and everything in therapy off the rack rather than tailoring it to that so i think that's i mean if we're if you know somebody working with you needs to actually listen to that and go like okay all that stuff that you know about body dysmorphia and and uh, self self-hatred and all this other stuff that's not going to work here mm-hmm. because a lot of times people will people will, will say oh no that's what that's what eat, that's what all eating disorder people have it's like no it's not but a lot of them do Yes, and and even, but, but, if, but if the ones do, then the other piece I want to know is like, I need to know specifically how, how is that work for that person? Because, because I, it's not going to be exactly like the person, you know, next to them or whatever. We've got to find, I mean, the more precise we can, the more specific information we can get, the, 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 the more powerful and the more effective the recovery is going to be. Yeah. But most importantly, it goes to what you're saying. It's like, whether we understand the craziness or not, like you're saying, like you're sitting there going like, there is no rational explanation for the fact that I'm sitting here, you know, looking at myself, emotiated wanting to not be wanting to eat and, and, and eating scares the holy crap out of me. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's like a piece of bread scares me. It's like that, you know, what I want people to know is we may understand a lot of things about that along the way. Psychologically, we don't have to understand anything about it to recover. We, we have to understand that it is that your experience, the way you describe it is exactly what it is. That's when the separation begins. We a lot of people, you know, we all have different origin stories. We, a lot of people will go along and we'll figure out. It'd be very obvious sometimes why how people got to be where they are, but sometimes it's not so obvious. But you know, and I want to help people understand themselves as much, best as possible. But I also want to help people to, to understand they don't have to get bogged down on understanding every little detail. Mm-hmm. They start to get better. Yeah, and ultimately you know? with eating disorders. You got to eat first. <laughs> so. got, well, AA, one of the things we say we say is you got to act. You act your way into right thinking. You don't think your way into right into, into right acting. It's like you, yeah, you just you just act as if you have to. You know, that's the the, the hardest thing in the world is in that that stretching. I'm talking to somebody earlier today about that. Ed. 
the the idea that you know, okay, you we're do, we're working on all this other stuff, but how are you doing with the plan of of you know gradually but steadily increasing your intake of food because that has to you know that has to be happening, and that's a good and that, again that 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 falls in the category of, of something that is different than when we're talking about alcoholism. It's like you know what I needed to do was stop drinking alcohol and not and you know and and. So far, I've, I've postponed my next drink for thirty years. So, that, that's you know that's that's uh, that's that's what we do, and it, it is simpler at this point to to be that way. But it's like, but in, now I'm remembering also the the question you asked is about the about the the, the sort of the the, the substitution the, the do eating disorders have more addictions and that kind of stuff. I think there is kind of a whack-a-mole thing with that, where one, where they, they're both addictive behaviors, and I think that people, I think both ways. I think people with eating disorders are maybe more inclined, and I couldn't get, like I say, I don't know the studies there, but they, they seem to me, from an anecdotal point of view, from an observation point of view, to be more inclined to to fall victim to other kinds of addictions. Uh, but I also think that's the same thing. We see that with people who are recovering from uh, from substance addictions too, is that they're also more likely to develop, you know. Uh, problems with with food right it's like it, it's like you know ba- basically because getting getting sober whether it be your version of sober or my version of sober is just the beginning you know it's like mm-hmm. you know you say you know we got we have to do it but i you know i say like you know getting the behaviors straight whether that be abstinence for me or or good food plan healthy food plan for somebody with an eating disorder getting that part is is analogous to lifting the hood of the car so that you can work on the engine it's like it's not about that, but it is about that because you can't do anything until you have that. Yeah. It's like if you and I have our heads under the under the hood and we're working on the engine and the hood slams down on top of our heads, we don't just keep working. We we have to do what we got to do to prop that damn hood back up because we have to have access. And you know, and that's and that's what you know, it's very frustrating for people because a lot of times people you know people, people I treat who have eating disorders are. Or I start to say smart people. They're sometimes too smart for their own good. It's like you know, sometimes they they use. Uh, I have a friend who says uh, you got to be you got to be aware of when you're using your t- intelligence to avoid learning. Yes. <laughs> I think there are a lot of us who have examples of that, but but I think it gets frustrating because because people that I work with, they're smart and they're and they're interested and and they're motivated to do a lot. Of, they want to understand a lot of stuff, but. One of the things they don't want to do because of the eating disorders change their behaviors, you know, and it's like it's like, you know, it's uh, I was talking to a young woman earlier today. Basically, she said the, the thing I've heard many times, and, and, and which is I want recovery. And she does. I can see it in her eyes. I really want recovery, but I don't want to gain any weight. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, like that block, isn't it? And it's like, well, it, 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 yeah. And it, it, yeah. And it's like, you know, and I told her that's like me saying I want to be in recovery, but I want to keep drinking. Yeah. You know, I don't get to do it. You don't get to do it. So, we got to find we got to find a way to change those behaviors. Um, so that just made me think of another question, something that um, it actually really interests me. And um, this question sort of revolves around the difference between eating disorders and, and possibly other addictions. So um, I, with eating disorders, I, I think that we we find it very hard to operate and act in the present moment. The eating disorder makes us continually make choices based on what we might have eaten yesterday or what our eating routine is or what we ate yep. for breakfast, say if it's lunchtime. Yep. And also 
My choice for what I'm going to eat for lunch might be affected by what I'm going to eat for dinner, what I've got planned later with an event that I have in three months' time on a Saturday that my eating disorder is already <laughs> freaking out about. It's way in the future. Very it's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah, it's, it's very <laughs> difficult for me to make a present moment decision. And, mm -hmm. and I used a lot of yoga and meditation to bring me and help me enable me to present, yeah. make present moment decisions. Now, yeah. say uh, um, somebody with an alcohol addiction... Surely it's more that they are actually making too many present moment decisions and not thinking about what happened in the past and how they I want the future. I never thought about it that way, Tabitha. I like that. I think, I think you're right. The, the impulsive part, you know, the, the, by, by being, by being in, under the influence of drugs and alcohol, it puts me in a place where my inhibitions are, are, are arrested to the point where, I, where I'm making impulsive and not good decisions. It's like, yeah, that, that, that I never thought about it that way. But that's it's sort of like the the the, the dark side of being in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, you, he's making that decision in the present moment. But the decision he's making is that that you know that he can drive while he's under the influence of alcohol. Yeah, you know, it's like so. No, I think I think that's that's a that's a really interesting point and, and a good contrast because. Um, because when you're describing that, just what you're the thinking and stuff, it's, it's like that's very familiar to me. And and listening to listening to people talk about the complexities, and, and this is where I, we, it's a really good way to, to begin to separate from Ed because Ed has all these rules. You know, the eating store has all these rules. It's like uh, the the one of them is you you alluded to is the compensation thing, which is okay. Well, okay, if you if you ate this today. Then for for the rest of today and tomorrow, you have to do this and do that. Ed's always negotiating, and that's something I learned about him for early on. It's like, okay, you, I will let, I will allow you to eat so and so as long as you're going to exercise this long, you know. And by the way, if you screw this up, then you're gonna, like you said, you're gonna have to do this and do do, do this. It's like. If you think about it, if you separate them out as a different person, it's almost like you, it, it's somebody who's talking. Mean, because this is one of the things I've learned about doing sort of the role plays with Ed. He talks nonstop. Never shuts up. He, he, and he, there are no punctuation marks. It's like one of the, for most people, not everybody, but for most people, I can usually do, I can say it without even putting the, the content in there. I go, he talks like this. He keeps talking like this. Never stops at all. He just always like goes, keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And then he circles back around and he does this again. And he talks about that, you know, and people look at me like, that's what it sounds like. You know, I mean, he literally doesn't leave room for you. He takes up all the space mm -hmm. and it's, and, he, and it's one rule after the other. And that's why it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And that's why it gets to be fun when you get to the place where you can say piss off, where you can stand up and go like, well, you just shut the hell up. Shut up. If you, you know? shut up, I'm going to keep eating cream cakes yeah. until you shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part. It's like, like who, you know, I've told people before, like, you know, when they're, when they're starting to be able to do stuff and they're, they're enjoying because it is fun. It's, it's, yeah. it's, that's where it's fun to, where you can actually feel empowered you know, is, is, uh, you know, when you feel like there is a separation and it's like, but part of what you can do as separation is, is you can, you can be angry outward. See, because the idea is a lot of times the self-hatred is, is because we don't know where else to put our anger and our, and our resentments. When you put Ed out there in front of you, it's like, now you can be mad at him. Now you can hate him. It's like, and, and this is, and what I tell people is, you can hate him as much as you want to. You never have to stop hating him because, and people will go like, oh no, you have to integrate that. But no, you don't. 
because that's not a part of your actual authentic self. This is, this is where we drop back and say, no, no, this is a metaphor. This is a metaphor for we're personifying and making the metaphor for, for some learning, some belief systems that are crazy and that are not a part of who you really are. And so you can push that guy out and you can keep pushing him out for the rest of your life. Just the same way as I can leave old tequila boy over there in the corner. And I don't ever have, you know, he can talk to me whenever he wants to talk to me, but I don't ever have to do what he says again or take him seriously again. But when somebody first gets that out there, it's like, it is fun. I've, I've had people say, I'll say, pull up a chair. Nobody else in the, in the room or in the restaurant has to know what you're doing, but pull up a chair and just let Ed sit there. And what and you just like watch me eat. Yeah, I've you know? done, it, definitely done that. Actually, yeah, I'm walking I, past a McDonald's and and you know I'd walk past and, and the eating disorder be like, oh, you can't have that. I'd just be like, just watch this. Just that's right. You, just you know, watch so this. Like, I wasn't going to, but now that you said <laughs> yeah. you just you just watch this. Like someone hold my coat. That's a great image, Jeff. <laughs> oh my god, I got a big mat in the back to me here, like. <laughs> But you're right. It's, it actually can be fun. Um, and oh, it gets it gets to be well. And part of the separate part of the metaphor, the separation of it is, and, and I always want people to know too that because it can be one thing. It's just like everybody's a little bit different. But, but pretty much, if if if, if something in fun, I'm not really that interested in it. It's the it, you, being having it be fun is not. I want people to know does not take away from the seriousness of it. It's like part of the humor, though, becomes a part of the therapy because it gives you perspective. If we if we can realize what an idiot this guy is, you know, it's, it's like yeah. it really helps. It helps. You know, you've got like, OK, well, I'm having a bad day. And so you think the best idea for me to deal with that bad day is to not eat anything. It's like, you know, that's that's your best idea. It's, yeah. it's like. It, yeah, it's just taking the credibility away. And I think that externalizing it, even if you can say those things out loud, hopefully if no one's there, sort of like, wait, you want me to not eat? Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, and you're right. And really? I do ask people, say, say, talk out loud if you will. It's like, it, it's more powerful to say it out loud. Or of course, we do it in sessions. But it, it, it's like, yeah, and exactly what you just said, to repeat it back like that really does put something in perspective. So you think starvation is the answer to this too. You know, <laughs> every single problem I have, every, you have one solution to everything, you know, it's like, it's like, like I'm pretty sure you're missing something there, buddy. So, yeah. um, but I also want people to listen to this and know, just you get to this part that we're talking about, but, but do not listen to the, the, any voice in your head that beats you up because you, you don't get there right now. It's like it's it takes a lot of work to get to that place. It's not I don't because it's amazing to me how often that that critical voice will will condemn people that if you're not careful, they're, they're going to you know, always say the bullies in our head, the, the should monsters, whatever you want to call them. They're going to tell you you're doing therapy wrong mm -hmm. every step of the way. So so I want people to know who are listening to part, it, you know, and I hope that they could listen to us talk about the fun part. And hope that could add to the the hope and go like well that that really is possible and it's going to happen. But if, if I want to say to that person, if it's not happening for you right now, you're not doing it wrong. It's like it just takes a lot of hard work to get there. Yeah. You know, and it's like and it's and I, what you need is you, you know nobody nobody can do this alone, whether it be your illness or mine. Nobody can none of you know. It's like you know yeah, um, there's a difference between isolation and solitude we all need some solitude but in terms of uh, you know recovery we need each other we need support we need to be 
we need people to care. We need people to understand. And we, and we need people just to, to remind us. Because everything you and I are talking about right now, we are both going to need to be reminded of. Oh, yeah. It's going along the line. It's like it doesn't matter. So we can do this for a living, but it's like the truth is, there are, we, I always say that must, must be God's plan that we are so damn forgetful as human beings so that now we need each other to remind one another. Because like, I may need some, I may say something to a client one time and just know I'm absolutely on target and something very similar within the next week, I need somebody else to say the damn, same damn thing to me. Yeah. You know, or I, one of the things I tell other therapists that I'm training is that, you know, I say we have the advantage of what I call the hypo- hypocrisy principle, that our job, you know, being, doing therapy for, with people is not a substitute for our own therapy. We all got to get our own, we all need to get our own help. But it's, but, but it is an advantage to the fact that I get to sit in therapy all damn day long. It's like, so I, you know, I am, I am inundated with this stuff. And so at the end of the day, that hypocrisy principle is I need to be able to, to be able to, to sort of run a check on me and say, how am I doing with the things that I talk to my clients about today? Yeah. And, and, and I tell people in my training, if you come back and say, you're always doing great with it, then you're not paying attention because <laughs> there are going to be places where you're missing it. And, and it's like, we, you know, and you, you, we can't, we can teach and, and, and help people with stuff that we're not doing successfully. That is, it's not true that you can't do that. But boy, is it more powerful and more effective if we're practicing what we teach. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom, I've got a, I've got, so I've got a copy of your book here, The, the Greater Possibilities. Um, where, and it's like these short um, couple of paragraphs on a page at a time. Yep. sort of messages it's, it's sort of one of those books i think that you, you can pick up and flick through and, and yep. read just one and but the first one and i just want to re- this one that i really like i just want to read this here um and it's right at the beginning but it's still my favorite one and it says forget about control one of the keys to success is accepting full responsibility for yourself accepting this responsibility contrary to popular belief has nothing to do with being in control there is a major distinction to be made between being in control and accepting the responsibility of being in charge. Simply put, you have nothing to say about the cards dealt to you, but everything to say about how you play those cards. Yeah. And and that bit there, I think that, well, for me coming from an eating disorder, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's a mental illness, I had no control about having the right. genetic predisposition to have that. Right. But I have every control about my recovery what you do with it absolutely yeah yep. and I, I yeah that that, that, that i appreciate that and that, and that yeah that distinction that, there are some there are there are there are some those the, there's some of those points like that and that's a, i think that's a good example of one where it's like for us to be able to not just get it in our head but to really integrate that understanding of the difference between being in control control and being in charge is when you, when you actually can get that those there are things like that that are quite simple, but that they will change you forever. It's like, you know, like I say, it doesn't fix everything forever, but it, but it changes your perspective so that, so that you, have a, you, you have a new way of, you know, a lot of what, what, what you and I do for a living is, is we bring the lights up. We show people stuff. And then it's like, you know, you like find the hidden picture. Then you can't, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm early in, in my recovery from alcoholism, I, I, a guy from uh, the AA said something that I've heard many times since then. He says, 
AA can't stop anybody from drinking, but we can sure take the fun out of it. And what he means by that is, is he, you know, basically I can still do the things I do, but no, the more I learn, the more I realize how, how insane this is. Yes. You know, and that's what, you know, what we're doing is, we're, you know, we don't get to choose how fast somebody else moves along. We get to nudge them and encourage them and the, the other stuff. Everybody's got to make their own choices about that. But we do want people to understand that, you know, no, this, you know, we do want to keep reinforcing. No, if Ed is telling you this is normal, it's not, you know. And, you know, and, and when Ed is telling you it's impossible for you to get well, he's lying to you. Tom, I, uh, I think that um, people are going to be really interested to find out more about you. So um, where can they do that? I, uh, my website is uh, just uh, TomRutledge.com. And my first name has an H in it. It's T-H-O-M-R-U-T-L-E-D-G-E.com. And, uh, and people are welcome to email me directly. It's Tom Rutledge author as in writer, Tom Rutledge author at Gmail. Uh, I'm more than happy to, to, um, answer questions, do that kind of stuff. I, I see people here in the office. I see, I work with people, uh, uh, through, through Skype or telephone stuff. And I'm happy to help if I can. And my all, information about all my books is on my website. There are several, there are several of them. There's a one on self-forgiveness that is, that is, uh, um, obviously very relevant to all of the work that we're talking about here is uh, learning how to how to um, have self-compassion. And a huge thank you to Tom Rutledge for coming on and taking the time to talk to me. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And whenever I say that I thoroughly enjoyed talking to a psychotherapist, I feel like that should be an oxymoron but the truth is there's some really fantastic psychotherapists out there and I think the difference that really comes across quite clearly to me when I talk to somebody like Tom there is that the difference is um, being in the job for the people and the passion it's really about the people and the passion and the advocacy and um, being able to share that I know this is hard I have been through this but hey I also know that you can do it um, I think it's invaluable. Um, and so I loved also that um, you spoke a little bit there about not to be discouraged if you're listening and thinking, well, it sounds so easy for them to talk about just, you know, like getting on with life and not listening to that eating disorder voice. But it's so loud right now and it's unbearable right now. And I feel like I'm failing because I'm not there. Well, I tell you what, you're not. Um, my recovery from the day that I decided oh, I have an eating disorder and I want to try and get better to what I even consider somewhere close to weight restoration and not just that, but a slightly freer and beginning to clear eating disorder mind. And to that point where I was at, where, where Tom and I spoke about that, I could walk past McDonald's and hear that voice and say, you know what, bring it on, you watch me. That took around four years and that utterly felt to me like four years where all I felt I was doing was failing. It felt like one slip after another. Um, and that's not even necessarily because I'm the sort of person that's hard on myself. I, I'm generally not like that. Um, it still felt like this onslaught of eating disorder abuse that I was drowning in. And with hindsight and now having worked with a number of people it seems so obvious to me as to why it is not only normal, but actually quite crucial that 
it feels like we're failing and it feels like things are getting worse. And that's because they have to get worse before they get better. And the reason for that is that if you have a mental illness that screams blue murder at you when you eat things, especially when you eat things it doesn't want you to eat, it stands to reason that when you begin the path of eating more, it's gonna scream even louder. You, if you're going from not eating, restricting, or eating but eating completely within the eating disorders conditions and rules which are endless, to challenging those rules, trying to eat more, trying to eat different foods, the foods that it doesn't want you to eat, well, it stands to reason it's going to scream even louder. I think that recovery from an eating disorder is like killing the wicked witch of the West. It screams and screams at you because you're doing exactly what it doesn't want you to do. And the reason it gets worse before it gets better is because it has to get worse because you have to eat more and you have to challenge it. And the volume has to rise to the extent that it's there for long enough and it's high enough that gradually, like we spoke about, you begin to ignore it and the credibility of it diminishes it. And so it's a bit like this. Say, if you live and you've lived all your life in this sleepy little village, like I did in the middle of the English countryside, and then if you move to a town and you buy a house that's next door to a railway tracks, that first night, you're not going to get any sleep. That train's going to come past and it's going to wake you up and you're going to get all of the like, oh my God, what's happening? And it will probably do that that night every time that train comes past. It will feel awful. And it, the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, when those trains come past, it's going to wake you up and it's going to feel like it slapped you in the face. But gradually, if you stay there, you'll get used to the noise of those trains going past. And if you've been there a year or so, You'll be sleeping through the night, you won't even notice. And somebody will come around to your house and say, oh my God, aren't those trains loud? And you'll say, what? I couldn't even hear them. That, that's exactly my experience with my eating disorder recovery. I had to push it. And when I started pushing it, when I started eating, it screamed so loud and it set off. Because they don't just scream, they press all the emotion buttons as well. It's not just noise. It's actually pressing the fear button, the anxiety button, the panic button. All of the buttons are being pressed. But if you keep on and you keep pressing and you keep challenging and you keep going, recovery is inevitable if you keep going because it begins, the noise just turns into background noise. You're so used to it. And I, I so I really appreciate that what Tom said there about, you know, don't listen to this and think that you're a failure because you're not there yet. I mean, hell, if it took me four years of feeling like a failure to even begin that I was getting to think I was getting somewhere. Um, and so I think that's, that's a really important message. So I, I really enjoyed talking to Tom and if you enjoyed listening to him, then let's see if we can corral him into coming on and doing another podcast. I tell you what, maybe if you send me any questions that you have for him, and then that will give me some ammunition to fire at him and say, hey, come and, come and give me another hour of your time and record a question answer podcast with me. So you can email questions um, to info at tabithaferrar.com. And let's see if we can get Tom Rutledge back on the podcast. Now, I do have something of somewhat of announcement. Those of you who know that I um, run a online meal support service for adults in eating disorder recovery, where you can go online and you can get a meal support coach. But it's not just meal support. It's also um, 
it can be post-meal support if that's when you have huge anxiety times. It can be binge eating disorder support. Um, it can be um, purging support in times that you think you might be needing some extra help so that you don't participate in those sorts of behaviours. Anyway, so that's ADRA and that's my baby that I operate alongside the one-on-one -on -one coaching that I do with people in recovery. And I'm excited to tell you that we have just launched a text messaging support system, an extra service to ADRA, um, which is even more affordable. Uh, it's about $12 for a 30 minute um, text session. And that is for times when say, you're going shopping, you know? <laughs> One of the hardest things about eating disorder recovery is, is buying the food that is needed to recover. And the eating disorder can just be on full throttle in the supermarket. I think it used to take me about three hours to buy a loaf of bread. And even that would have been just, it was, it was a very stressful three hours, put it that way. So I think that having on the spot someone that you can text and get help and just get support um not necessarily even advice or anything just someone there saying hey i know this is really difficult i'm here with you i'm helping you do this um and i wanted to create a service that can be just like that that can be where you are at and sometimes it's not appropriate to have a phone or a voice service because you might be in a public space and not be wanting to actually say out loud hey, my eating disorder is going crazy right now, help me buy a loaf of bread. But texting is a really good medium for that. So the text service is available for help with um, all types of eating disorders, so restrictive eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa and bulimia, and also um, non-restrictive eating disorders such as binge eating disorder. And we really have the ability now to help you when you need it most, where you need it most, um, and that's what I'm really excited about. If you would like to find out more about that, you can go to the ADRA website and the web address for that is www.adulteatingdisorderrecovery.com. That's www.adulteatingdisorderrecovery.com. Thanks for listening. Cheers and until next time. Cheerio.